0: Hello sword people and welcome to this episode of The Sword Guy. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to tell you about a package of free courses I've put together for you which include a basic class in longsword, rapier, breathing exercises, meditation and of course joint care. I think these classes, especially meditation, breathing and joint care, are simply too important to put behind a paywall and so they are entirely free. You can find them at go.guywindsor.net. Just sign up there to join hundreds of your fellow sword enthusiasts and get immediate access to all of this material. I look forward to training with you. Now, on with the show. Hello, sword people. This is Guy Windsor, also known as The Sword Guy. And I'm here today with Damon Young, who is a swordsman and a writer. And a little birdie tells me he is also something of a philosopher. So, without further
1: ado, Damon, welcome to the show. Good day. Uh, whereabouts in the world are you, Damon? So, I am in Hobart, uh, a city in the state of Tasmania in Australia. Um, so, if you think of uh, the south of the southern island uh, of the southern continent, <laughs> that's where I am. Um, I was actually born and raised in Melbourne, um, capital city of Victoria, but. We moved here to Hobart uh, a few years ago, and it's gorgeous. Um, But it's yes, it's very south. We're about 2,600 kilometers from the Antarctic. Wow.
0: Have you ever visited the Antarctic?
1: Not yet, no. Sometimes I wander off from the house and think I might go for a little bit of a stroll, but I never quite catch the Antarctic.
0: Well, just by by Australian standards, 2,000 kilometers really is kind of next door. Yeah, it's not that that far at all. Uh, Okay, so you're a philosopher, author of books like Philosophy in the Garden, and the uh, soon to be published in Europe, but already out in Australia, on getting off sex and philosophy. Um, And you've also edited a couple of books on martial arts and philosophy. Should we start with those? Yeah, sure. Do tell us about them.
1: Okay, so there's, there's two volumes with two very different audiences. Um, the first volume is called Engagement, um, Philosophy and the Martial Arts, and that's edited by Graham Priest and I. Um, and that is sort of academic papers bringing these two topics together f- for academics or at least for students. It's a, it's a scholarly collection for scholars. Um and then there's a second collection called um, Martial Arts and Philosophy Beating and Nothingness, <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> which is a, a, a very pop uh, volume, which is written for a general audience. Um, and there, there's some crossover in the topics, the themes, the ideas. Now, obviously, as an editor, I have a, a paper in both, and each paper looks at very similar things, but, you know, one's written for academic philosophers, and the other is written for everyone. Um, Okay. And these these came out of uh, some conferences that Graham and I put on uh, in Melbourne at the University of Melbourne there where I'm an associate. Uh, Really just bringing together what we thought were a natural fit but what others thought was completely bizarre. Well, you see, it, it makes perfect sense to me. There's like
0: a centuries and centuries-old connection between martial arts and philosophy, because if you're going to go around killing people, you have to have some kind of philosophical framework to justify it.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and look, look uh, many of the papers, including my own, uh, begin with Plato, because, of, you know, Plato was widely regarded as the father or the grandfather of European philosophy um, after Socrates before Aristotle. And Plato was a noted wrestler. Um, in fact, Plato was his wrestling nickname, referring to his build, his broad shoulders. So, um, I did there, not know that. Yeah, there's there's this immediate connection. Now, unless Plato was horribly contradictory in this, and I don't think he was. Um, it's, it's fascinating to me to think of this as someone who regularly engaged in martial arts, who defended the martial arts in his dialogue, um, but was also kind of the philosopher for generations of Europeans um, and Arabic scholars, for what it's worth. Wow. Okay. So,
0: okay. Most people, I think, listening to this probably don't really know what a philosopher does when he wakes up in the morning. Like, what, 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 what is the
1: job? Okay, so um, I think Alfred North Whitehead, who was a mathematician and philosopher, put it really nicely. He said, a, a philosopher is a critic of abstraction. And that sounds bizarre because we tend to think of philosophers as people who deal in abstractions. But actually, the mm-hmm. the kind of essential philosophical work is to take our ideas, which are themselves abstractions from the world, and, um, you know, we've neaten things up. We've taken away a lot of the relationships, a lot of the mess and tangles and knots of life, and we've simplified things and we're left with this nice, crisp, clean idea that we then sort of toss back and forth between ourselves. And Whitehead was arguing with actually the philosopher's job is to say, well, hang on a minute. How does that idea you're playing around with square up with reality as we know it? How does it relate to other ideas? Is it as neat and as simple as you think? And I think a lot of what philosophers do and have done for at least a couple of thousand years is exactly that practice to just say, hang on a minute. I know you think, you know, what you're talking about, but do you actually know um, Are you sure your confidence about this idea is, um, is reasonable? And so that's. You know, this takes many forms. Some, some philosophers do that with ideas of goodness or justice. Some philosophers do that with notions of, of beauty. Some philosophers do it with language. Um, but I think all philosophers, insofar as they're philosophers, are engaged in that basic task of saying, let's take a closer look at, at your ideas, at your concepts, or at the, um, the patterns behind those concepts,
0: well, wow, Yeah, I think critical of, of abstraction is a really, really useful phrase.
1: Yeah, and I so it, I,
0: I have reminded yeah, myself of, of this. that. Yeah. Okay, so um, do you have a philosophy?
1: <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's a good question. It, the answer to that question can often take two forms. So there's a difference between philosophy as a practice of reflection and its accomplishments. So um, we might say someone like David Hume had a philosophy that was empirical and rational. He was concerned purely with what um, sense perception was able to give him, um, and he was trying to reject everything that we couldn't sort of point to and say there's a something. Um, That was his explicit working philosophy. So that's one way in which we use philosophy. Then there's another way in which we use philosophy, which is a kind of implicit framework of ideas and values and habits that we don't necessarily think about all the time, but which guide us every day. Um, and I'm absolutely certain I have In terms of, sorry, the martial arts, for example, I'm sure I have an implicit framework of ideas, values and habits um, that I take with me into the training hall or that I used to take with me into the dojo. Um, That's quite different to having a kind of very clear and systematic practice of reflection that relates to martial arts. And um, yes, I have that. But there's no way it's as sort of expansive as my living philosophy, which I'm still kind of sorting out, you know. Um, If I have the rest of of your life to get it right, (laughs) well, yeah, (laughs) Um, and I'm trying to lengthen it, you know, Uh, but only so I can get the philosophy right. Now, (laughs) um, a good example, I think, of um, you know one kind of reflective philosophy I'm interested in 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 martial arts, to be talk about the specifics here, uh, are the virtues. Um, I'm very interested in how the virtues, as articulated by someone like Aristotle, relate to our practice in the training hall. You know, because we often hear a lot about notions of, say, bravery uh, to do with the martial arts and sword fighting. And it's a really important part of, you know, the, the chivalric code as well. But what exactly is meant by bravery and how in practice can we disentangle that from uh, things that might look like bravery, like foolhardiness, but which are actually um, dangerous to, to us and to others? Um, and just in case it's helpful, Aristotle, when he was talking about what a virtue is, he said a virtue is kind of a, a middle point between two extremes. On the one side, you have a deficiency and on the other side, you have an excess. So if you look at courage, the deficiency of courage is cowardice and the excess is foolhardiness. So the, the coward um, exaggerates the danger um, or exaggerates their, their, their incapacity to do anything about it and is paralyzed or runs away. The, the foolhardy person doesn't even notice the danger or just kind of hurls themselves into it heedlessly um, now, that may look like bravery, but bravery is when you rationally and knowingly, in f- in full knowledge of the danger, meet it anyway because it's your duty. Um, and I think anyone who's been in a sword bout with someone who's superior to them knows what it is to be foolhardy when you kind of hurl yourself in without the proper protection because... It's it's kind of the only way you can overcome your damaged pride. But you're not being brave because you're not doing it reasonably, you're being foolhardy. So that that's something that interests me a, a great deal. Oh, me too.
0: And and Fiore's four virtues are famous examples of these. And you can like for those who are maybe listening and not familiar with Fiori, those are foresight, uh, boldness, and strength and speed. And as I see them, they, so foresight is the ability to kind of see what's going to about to happen. And boldness, um, well, foresight tempers boldness because if you, if you have no idea what's about to happen and you just go charging in any way, that's not boldness. That's foolhardiness. Mm. Um, but with sufficient foresight, you can temper your boldness and like, strength tends to make you static and immobile. Um, So speed tempers strength and, and vice versa. Too much foresight will make you too aware of all the risks and therefore paralyzed by, by sort of fear of consequences. And too much speed makes you unstable.
1: Mm, exactly. Yeah, and, and it's it's not enough to just cultivate one without the others. And that's a point right. that Aristotle made. But I think it's it's super important for 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 good swordsmanship. But I also think for, for living a good life. Um, oh, you know, really? If, if, if to to give your example of of foresight and boldness, um, you can be extremely bold. For example, with Someone in the in the training hall, um, but if you're too bold, if you're too heedless of your relationship with that person, you can hurt them, you can injure them, you can disrespect them, um, and in doing so, you can undermine their training and yours. Um, and perhaps we'll get yeah, to that later. But I'm, this is something I wrote about in those collections. It's what virtues are necessary to not just win bouts. But to train as a martial artist in a social context with other human beings who are also, you know, vulnerable and so on.
0: So um, let's just backtrack a little bit, so people have an idea of your sort of martial arts background. So I know because I've seen you post pictures of yourself on Twitter with swords. <laughs> um, you are a practicing swordsman. Um, how did you get started with all of that, and and what?
1: What are you currently training? Yeah, so um, I've, I've always had an interest in the martial arts. Uh, I started with um, karate and then I did some judo and some aikido. Um, huge fan of, of judo. Um, and then I took a break for a while focusing on other things, doing different kinds of fitness. And then when we moved to Tasmania, it turns out there was um, a HEMA school, um, a, a sword play school. Uh, ten minutes away, and that's the Staccata oh, wow. School run by Stephen Hand. Oh, you're you trained with Stephen? Yeah, Stephen and I are old friends. Yeah, I mean he he has mentioned you in in classes as well, um, uh, approvingly. I should add, I'm, <laughs> like Guy Windsor. Um, and so I've my sort of base uh, weapon and skill set is uh, broadsword, English broadsword, but we've also trained. Um, subsequently with rapier, um, sword and shield, uh, sword and buckler. And we've just started on um, Paul Wagner's interpretation of English longsword, which is really, really interesting.
0: It is. Yeah, I had Paul over to Finland to teach a seminar on that so I could get a proper look at it. Sort of how I've always worked with my own training is when – an instructor has some kind of interesting idea, uh, I would get them over to Finland and they would teach a weekend seminar for me so I could really properly see the idea. And mm. they'd be staying with me a couple of days before and a couple of days after. And sometimes, like, like well, when Stephen came over, he came for um, two weekends and the week in between. And so he taught a sword and buckler workshop on the first weekend. Then on the Wednesday night, we taught a seminar together on how our interpretations of 133 have now changed now that we've actually met each other and interacted. Nice. And then on the, then on the Sunday, he did a, a seminar for me on George Silver. Yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, had, I had Paul over for a, a seminar thing so I could get a proper look at his English longsword, and it was really interesting. Um, it's certainly things, things Paul really knows how to fence. So whatever he teaches is going to work. My only question really is, is that what the text actually means?
1: Yes, and it's it's incredibly complicated. I, I'm in no position to speak on the detail, um, but but, no but, but 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 sometimes um, the question is raised: is is would that work for the rest of us, or would it just work for Paul? Because <laughs> um, having having fenced Paul, um, sometimes he's able to pull off things that that I don't quite understand, um, and yeah, uh. Uh, Look, most of it, because we also have people who've done um, German longsword in the class, and many of the techniques cross over as you would expect, because the the human body only has so many feasible positions. And there are only so many tactics to take advantage of those positions. But there are definitely some parts that do seem distinctly English in their approach. Um, If you can speak of a kind of unified national approach to sword, I I don't know if you can. I'm being very cautious here. But if there is such a thing, it it would make sense um, of what Paul is teaching. Um, But again, I, I must claim ignorance here. Yeah, yeah, and I, I didn't, I didn't get you on to, to, um,
0: to go into the de- depths and details on Paul's um, Paul's longswordism. I should get Paul on to do that because I think that's probably a bit fairer. Yes, do. <laughs> okay, so so you've been training um, swordsmanship pretty much since you got to Hobart. Yes, excellent. Okay, um, and so obviously, to my mind, philosophy and swords are. Um, okay here, here's a good way to put it martial arts to me are a hollow deck for the study of ethics yes um so but that's me and i'm not a professional philosopher so i'm curious about how your study of philosophy um colors your
1: martial arts practice Sure. One of the points that Graham and I made in the collections is there's a nice kind of bicameral relationship happening there. So um, you can use philosophy to make sense of practices in the martial arts. You can use philosophy to make sense of the interpretation of martial arts texts. Um, But you can also use martial arts to throw up really interesting problems um, for philosophy. Um, you know, the practices or experiences that suddenly um, challenge ideas in the martial arts. And I'll, I might get to that in a second. But first of all, I'd like to talk about sort of how, how philosophy can help us to think about aspects of the martial arts. And obviously, yes, the, the, the first one is, is ethics. Um, that's kind of the most straightforward and a, a great many of the papers in our collections were about ethics, because the, the obvious question is, how could you um, weakly engage in violence and be a good person? Um, you know, it's sort of, it's yeah. you know, like, <laughs> philosophically. It's a bad it's question. Like, yeah. Now, and I think it's, it's a really important question because um, I think you could make a fairly reasonable case to say, well, um, if you engage regularly in violence, you're going to become a more violent person, surely. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, I think that's true. I'll get to the research in a second. Um, but actually, there's another claim that's made in the martial arts, um, certainly in the, the many of the Japanese and Chinese martial arts, but in other martial arts as well. There is a claim made regularly that no, actually studying martial arts... Uh, makes you less violent Um, and it seems like a paradox um, but in fact it's not and there are studies that show that uh, young people and adults who regularly train certain kinds of martial arts actually develop more pro-social behaviors so they are they are better to be around they are less violent less aggressive have fewer violent thoughts and so on. And one of the reasons for that is that partly it allows them to kind of purge their violent urges in a safe and respectful environment. So if if you do have this need to engage in violent acts, that the dojo or the training hall, or the cell, whatever you want to call it, is a place where you can do that but safely um, with rules about how it has to happen. Um, some of those rules are about the equipment, some of those rules are about techniques, but some of those rules are also about how you express your feelings when you're engaged in violence. And a good example of that is in um, karate. If you hurt someone during sparring, you immediately had to move to the side of the dojo and sit down kneeling in seizure. And the idea was it's a sign of respect. You recognize you've hurt someone, you withdraw from the fighting area. Um, they make that expression of respect um, explicit. It's part of the code. But that helps everyone understand um, sort of where they stand relative to each other. But a similar thing happens informally in many fencing schools. As soon as you hurt someone, um, you stop fighting, you express regret, you make sure they're okay, um, you move away so a doctor or a um, teacher can check them out and so on. So, These are good examples of how you're you're engaging in violence, yes, but you're also participating in a social structure that emphasises social virtues and does so uh, with safe techniques and safe equipment. So the second part of that is that this only works if the authority structure in the school demonstrates pro-social virtues, so in karate yeah, schools, for example, traditional martial arts schools, so-called, um, I might get to that a little bit later, what we call <laughs> traditional and what we don't. But in so-called traditional martial arts schools, um, it was only those schools that had teachers who explicitly addressed the ethics of fighting, um, of mutual respect, of courtesy and care that produced students who develop more pro-social behaviour. Um, so as a teacher, it's not enough to just let your kids rip and assume that everything's safe and everything will be fine because they might then go back out into the community and be more violent because of your teaching, because of what you've taught them. You have to continue. Them, yeah. Sorry, go on.
0: Yeah, yeah you, what you've taught them is it's okay to hit people, end of. As exactly. As opposed to in this in- control environment, it's okay to hit people, but if things go wrong... Uh, I see Dave Lowry has a lovely article about this. I think it's in his book, um, Sword and Brush, um, which is, uh, it's, so sorry, my fault, are you okay? And it's about, you know, he got punched in the face by a senior Japanese instructor, and how that guy handled it was, he apologized, he took responsibility
1: for it, and he checked that he was all right. Yep. And that's, that's, that's the model. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it's, it's just a, a basic standard of sort of decency, care, courtesy, and, and so on. Um, it, it shows that you respect the other person as a human being. You don't want to injure them. You don't want to harm them. And, but in, on the contrary, you want to work together. And that's the whole point of why you're there is working together for mutual benefit. Um, and that's, again, something I've discussed quite a bit in my papers for those collections. It's the idea that you're, you're there to learn you can't learn if you're continually um, maliciously hurting one another or scared that someone's going to maliciously hurt you. So, th- that's an area where I think, um, you know, philosophy brings some ethical clarity to the relationships that are necessary to learn the martial arts. And I, I think if, if you are a HEMA teacher and you're looking for what traits you need to encourage for the for kind of leadership you need to display, I think philosophy is a, is a handy way into those ideas. Um, so that's, that's a very long answer. But I also think it's a, it's a really important area of the martial arts because we, we, cannot, we absolutely cannot ignore the fact that if we're doing proper martial arts, we are doing violence to one another. The only difference is that right. violence is consensual and safe and respectful.
0: Right, and and some people though are practicing in, should we say, I don't know, modern self defence or combat shooting or training in the military or whatever, and they are actually they're not practicing just to fight with swords with their friends. They're actually practicing how to kill somebody should that situation arise. Yeah, and and that situation because of the you know the art that they're practicing may very well arise. Yes. So that that kind of it's one of the reasons why I like teaching historical martial arts because you can you can get right into the holodeck of it and it's it's theoretical. I don't have to worry about the character of my students. Are they actually going to take this stuff and go out and murder people?
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, which is a really not something you want on your mind. No, exactly. Um, so
0: yeah. So the, the ethical component, I mean, one way that I've handled that is like, after the advanced class, I will like, ask them a question like, OK, in what circumstances is it OK to you know, stab somebody in the face with a sword? Right? And they'll go off and think about it and then they'll write me an email telling me what they think. And some people interpreted that as, well, obviously, we're only talking about blunt swords and masks. And other people took it to mean sharp sword in the face. Mm -hmm. And other people, some some people were um, basically sociopaths. Like like um, when when it feels like a good idea.
1: Yeah, a Friday. Friday is the perfect (laughs) time to stab someone in the face. Yeah, right. And, And other
0: people were like. No, under no circumstances that I can think of would that be an okay thing to do. Mm. And and I, I fall somewhere in between. Yep. Um, but yes, but just getting people to think about it is I think a critically important part of teaching martial arts ethically.
1: Yes. And I, I think it's uh, one more thing I'll add and then I'd sort of like to, to move on. One more thing is that it's not enough as I've seen in some traditional martial arts schools, it's not enough to just say... This is what the art teach you, teaches you. you know, it, it becomes a form of advertising, um, advertising magic, where if you practice this form of karate, this so-called traditional martial art, that's you know, younger than boxing, if you practice this traditional martial art, you'll become a better person. Right, And it's it's as spurious as the claim that reading makes you a better person. Reading how? Reading what? Reading with what Mm. proclivities? And it's the same with martial arts. You must be engaged in an active moral effort to become better. And in many cases, you will need someone to encourage you or to model that behavior. And that's going to be your teacher and senior students. Without that it really just does become a form of marketing that you know if you engage in yes. this mystical practice you'll somehow become better through woo and it doesn't work
0: yes <laughs> quite right yeah and it that whole um what, you, But you, the, there are all sorts of unfounded claims that are made like you know if you're if you practice this particular martial art you'll get better at self-defense well Okay, if they're looking at self-defense scenarios and training you in identifying those scenarios and avoiding them or training you in surprise attack from behind by somebody bigger and stronger or whatever. If that's what they're actually modeling, then yes, it might work. But you don't just sort of magically get better at self-defense by practicing, say, I don't know, um,
1: 17th century rapier. That isn't going to help. No, no. Oh, for obvious reasons. And suppose, <laughs> suppose it did work. I mean, s- suppose you then became extremely good at killing people with a rapier. What would the everyday modern value of that be? You know, well, I can defend myself if I'm allowed to murder people. Um, but without the whole murder thing, I'm not so good. Um you know, it's, it's impractical. And that, in fact, is, it sounds odd when you say it using HEMA, when you talk about rapier like that, but that's legitimately a claim that some traditional martial arts make, that, you know, we'll teach you how to kill people. Like, why? <laughs> like, why, why do you need to know how to kill people? That's absurd. You know, mate, you, you uh, work well, an office job. The most annoying thing in your day is when the Uber is late. Yeah.
0: Although you know, I I one of the reasons I liked martial arts is I really like the idea of being able to kill people because when I was young there was there was there were some vengeance issues of you know, course and I I'd have been them totally too. have you and 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 you know the opportunity to really do some damage in return was like really attractive.
1: Yeah, yeah. and look, <laughs> I, I have I have used martial arts to defend myself, um, well and poorly. I, I recognise its martial value, which is another philosophical question. But I think so much of the advertising and marketing of the martial arts is is it is at the level of comic book wish fulfillment fantasy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's more about living out a dream of being martially proficient than what it actually is to be in a situation where you're defending yourself, um, which is often awful. Even if you do well, mm-hmm. it's awful. It's it's harrowing. Um, But moving on for a second, I think there are actually a a bunch of other ways that philosophy can be helpful in in Hema, and I'm sort of talking about Hema specifically. Um, One is notions like the hermeneutic circle. Um, I don't know if you've come across that in your interpretations, but hermeneutics uh, originally referred to biblical study, the interpretation of biblical texts, the idea that we'll look This was written a long time ago uh, in a different language, translated through several languages. It's got to us centuries, sometimes thousands of years later, how do we make sense of this holy book? But that kind of broadened out to include all kinds of other interpretation and the issues that come out when you're trying to interpret a historical document. And the hermeneutic circle is the idea that, well, in order to understand, say, Fioré's work um, or Lichtenhauer or George Silver's um, works, you need to understand the context in which they were written. But uh, in order to understand the context in which they were written, you need to understand a whole lot of the particulars. You need to understand works like Fioré's or Silver's or whatever. So the hermeneutic circle refers to this continual to and fro between text and context that happens when you're trying to make sense of a historical document. Um, but it doesn't just apply to texts. It also applies to human behaviour. So if you're, if you're trying to understand um, what's happening in a martial arts school... You need to kind of have a look at the social context, what's happening here. But that social context only makes sense by referring to the very specific actions and their very specific meanings. So that's another way in which something that seems quite obscure and starts in you know, biblical studies is actually brought to bear today by people who are trying to make sense of you know what George Silver wrote in uh, the late 16th century. Um, does that? I mean, you you work on translation. Does that sort of very basic notion of the relationship between texts and contexts make sense to you? Does it sound reasonable?
0: Well, I mean, I, I also my my first degree is in English lit, so right. Yes, I mean, <laughs> yes, right. Um, without getting to to you know postmodern and Deridian and whatever, um, yeah, it, it, it's to to understand something that was written, say, in sixteen hundred. You have to have a pretty clear idea of. Um, oh, and by the way, Roland Bart can just fuck right off. The author is te- <laughs> is no, no. Te- is
1: we like the dead. author guy. We
0: like the. We like exactly. Exactly. Um, so, so the to, to to know what the basically we us swords people, we go to the text basically to get a fencing lesson, mm-hmm. and to get the fencing lesson we have to understand what it is the person is actually saying so what the words mean and what they mean in the context of the other words on the page and what they mean in the context of the maybe the pictures on the page but also what they mean in the context of that person's culture and background and what was going on in the world around them what was going on in the fencing world what was going on politically and socially and and it 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 just Expands out from there, and you can end up going down all sorts of fascinating but un- unnecessary, from a fencing pur- for, f- for fencing purposes, rabbit hole. Yes, but um, yeah, we're in this for curiosity and for yes. that that, yes, that yes. glorious feeling of how it feels to pick up a sword and swing it, and and it feels right. That swords that's, are cool.
1: Exactly, swords, swords are, cool. are so and cool. That, I mean, people just. I, mean, I actually considered I, one of my side projects is I am writing a, a sort of philosophy of swords, um, and I believe it's going to be called "The Point: A Philosophy of Swords." <laughs> but I was I was so close to calling it "Swords Are Cool" and just leaving it at that. Um, but but, know, but um, I, swords I, are cool. They're so they're so cool, and it's there's an immediate appeal. Um, you know, spears are enormously useful. Um, and no doubt no, that's possible, cool. but they're not cool. They, I mean, you know, so many wars have been won with spears, but mm-hmm. swords. Anyway, um, right. And another, at, yeah, go on. Sorry, story, I, I, you know, like tanks,
0: that's kind <laughs> of cool, I suppose. And and but 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 swords are better. They not are because they're better at killing people. But just no. because they are, they are. I don't know. I I think that there is some kind of profound fundamental kind of human neurological thing that you have basically this extension to your arm that can do stuff. And it's 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 that's cool. And you know, I'm I'm a woodworker as well. So I have like the I have a similar feeling about planes and chisels, but swords are cooler because yep. because they are yeah, Self-defense, you now, words, defending your life from violent harm, is a more fundamental purpose than making
1: a nice piece of furniture. So, I don't know. it's certainly more primal. I don't know if it's more fundamental, but, but I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to put that okay. aside. But I do have <laughs> yeah, a whole, go ahead. I do have a whole essay on why swords are popular um, that I oh, wrote nice. for the magazine Mianjin a little while back, and I will send that to you. But, I, but yes, I, I'll put a link in the show notes. But please, uh, please summarize it for us. Well, the the, the the basic idea is, as we've just said, swords, you know, they're a sidearm a lot of the time. And when they're not a sidearm, they're often used with something else like a shield. Um, on their own, they're a very specific, limited kind of weapon. Um, and why is it then that they're so enormously popular? Because if, if you look at popular culture... Um, Star Wars, you know, not a small franchise. And essentially, w- what are the the stars? W- who are the great figures, the protagonists of Star Wars? They're swordsmen. You know, they, they might they might be sort of space ageified samurai, but they're essentially swordsmen. Um, yeah. Harry Potter has a sword. There are swords in comic books, swords in video games, and so on. I, I don't think I need to make that case because I think we know no. how potent yeah, yeah, yeah. they are. Um. My, my argument is, and I haven't, again, this is something I want to expand on in the, the sword book, but in this essay, the argument is partly that swords seemingly demonstrate virtue because in order to fight with a sword, you have to put yourself immediately in harm's way. Um, it's mm-hmm. not like killing from a distance. You have to be able to see the whites of the eyes, so to speak. So there's immediately more sense of, martial virtue, sort of courage and perseverance, I would say, in a sword than there is in, say, a rifle or a, uh, or a bow or a catapult or um, certainly a, a missile that you control remotely. Um, and then you might say, okay, then, well, then why are knives um, equally as symbolically potent as swords? And the answer to that is knives are sneaky, um, you you can hide you can hide a knife a knife a knife is what you use to do someone um, without being noticed and sure of course there are knife fights but yeah, most, yeah. most uses of knives are sneaky um, they're done very quickly very nastily there there's a sense of if not cowardice although I think in many cases knife use is cowardly if you're up against someone unarmed. Um, if not cowardly, then, yeah, a bit sneaky. They're the tools of assassins, not duelists. Whereas a right. sword, um, a sword is something you're certainly in melee range. You're there intimately with that other person, but you're doing so explicitly and openly. You're, you're putting yourself on mm-hmm. the line and saying, we are going to fight now, which is very different from from either shooting at someone from a distance or, you know, shanking them quickly in in, uh, through the ribs. Um, So I think that's one reason why swords are popular is because they symbolize martial valor and perseverance in a way that other weapons don't. Second reason is that they're wearable. Um, And as I said, yes, you can wear a knife, but it doesn't have the same valor. You can't wear a spear. You you can't wear a bow in the same way. Swords are in the perfect range to become part of your uniform, part of your martial identity, Um, and and they often have. Um, You know, if you look at something like a rapier, I think a rapier is really at the very edge of what you can reasonably wear as a sword. Yeah, sure. Um, And if you've ever tried to get around wearing a rapier, (laughs) Um, you oh, know, yes. you you would not want to do that in an antique shop. Um, so I think yeah. that those two elements come together with swords: um, explicit I mean, martial valor and um, the capacity to become part of a uniform. I think there's more to it. Um, I think I, the. But I think I think you've nailed it because you know I I I've, I love all martial arts.
0: I've I've done you know karate and aikido and and. Kung fu and, and spears and swords and bows and guns. And, you know, there isn't, there isn't a weapon I don't like. And there isn't, there isn't a martial art that involves hitting people I've ever not enjoyed. I do. Yeah. It just, it just works. But swords are the thing. And my, I realized uh, long ago that I'm primarily interested in sidearms. Yep. The things I like best are sidearms. And so, you know, when it comes to guns, I much prefer pistols over rifles, although obviously rifles are empirically better in many circumstances. Yes. And when it comes to bladed weapons, yeah, I love knives. And, of course, I do. And, um, you know, Zweihanders and spears and poleaxes and what have you. But the sword is the thing. Mm-hmm. And and it's. I think, yeah, it's because you can wear it and it's just part of – part of who you are when you just put it on and you don't have, it leaves both hands, both hands are free for a spear or whatever else. Yes. But the sword just hangs there. And yeah, there's, there's something magic about it.
1: There is. And look, I think there is, there's slightly more in that sword was often proof of a certain status. um, either because only certain people could afford them because it really does take a lot more to make a sword than say an ax or a spearhead. Um, you know, spears are much more efficient um, yes. than a sword, uh, but they're just not as cool. And, and, yeah, that's partly because they're associated with an aristocratic elite, I think, um, both monetarily and they are literally uh, the only class that is sometimes allowed to wear a sword. Um, so in Japan and also in Europe, commoners were just banned from wearing swords. And that wasn't because yeah. they were worried about the commoners spending too much money. Um, you know, it was partly because they wanted to disarm them, but also because it was a you know a badge of pride. But I, my hunch is that the other two things I was talking about are more important in what makes swords so enormously rad. I, I yeah, I think I think you've nailed it. Um, um, there are just a, look, the, the philosopher in me could talk a lot about this sort of stuff. I might just mention two more things very briefly. Um, Please do. And these are. Uh, we're, just, we're, in no, we're in no hurry, so you, okay. you go down your rabbit hole, sir. And we'll follow <laughs> you gladly. You. Um, there are a couple of other things where I think philosophy is helpful for the martial arts. Um, and I've sort of, so I've said ethics, obviously, the hermeneutic circle, um, thinking about what swords are and their value, which we were just doing. Um, I think philosophy can, at its best, teach you to be comfortable within ignorance. Um, and that sounds bizarre because you're constantly curiously questing after truth. But one of the things about being a philosopher, and I would say most academic disciplines worth their salt, is that you, you really have to get used to not knowing. You have to get comfortable with the limits of your knowledge. You have to recognize when other people know far more about a topic than you do. And I think this is extremely helpful with HEMA because we are dealing with Um, with, in some cases, documents that are centuries old. And there are some questions that we can't answer and we shouldn't pretend that we can until we can. We can can develop feasible and plausible techniques. Um, You know, Steve, when interpreting George Silver's work, will say, look, Silver doesn't say whether it's this or that. Um, All I can say is this technique works when we apply it. Um, I, I think philosophers, good philosophers are accustomed to that feeling um, and, I, and I think there is a tendency in martial arts, especially when the product you're selling is tied to your historical authenticity, there's a real danger of saying, oh, yeah, I know that. Here's the great martial secret. Here's, here, this is exactly what... Fiore or Silva or Oishiba or yeah. um, any one of these people. Yeah. I know that the great secret and I think, you know, the, the philosopher will say, you just don't. And that's okay. okay. Right, You know, you don't yeah. have to pretend.
0: Yeah, I have, you know, I've, I've been running a school for a long time and we have formal teaching exams for uh, people starting to lead classes and so on. And like the highest level exam Basically, you run a seminar for a day, and there's there's a bunch of people watching, including me, with a stopwatch and a notebook and looking intimidating and all that kind of stuff. And um, there's always one question that will get put to these to the candidate, where I know they don't know the answer, ah. right? And in front of a class full of students they have been teaching for the previous three hours or whatever, they have to say, I don't know. Nice. Right? Because that, it. it is so hard to do. Yeah. It is so hard because particularly when you're teaching, it's sort of your job to know. It's your job to be the person who knows the thing so that everybody else can learn the thing. Yes. But, but that so very easily leads you into being – into well yes of course I know rah, rah, rah. and then somebody asks you a question you don't actually know the answer to and so you just bullshit your way out of it because it's just a natural thing to do and so having that trap in there it just it's just yeah no, no one has ever failed that yet because they are very very carefully prepared for several years before the exam takes place ah, <laughs> but, good. But, but, the, but yeah I'm I'm not in the business of failing my students if I can avoid it but the that the the test is there, and it's it's hard because your whole body wants to be the person who knows the answer when you're in that position. Yes, absolutely.
1: Yep. And and I think that actually leads nicely into my next point, which is about testable claims. And uh-huh, you know, yes. there's a lot of work in the history and philosophy of science about. Uh, what are you saying is true? Under what conditions is it true? How, how would you test this, and so on? Now, obviously, that's super important to uh, science um, and philosophy itself, but it's also really, really helpful for the martial arts, um, where someone, you know, someone might say, for example, you know, um, well, I, I know, I know the death touch. I've trained for yeah. many years, and I know uh, the death touch. I- I've met these people. Yeah, and and the sort of the obvious question to this is: well, how, how do you know? Like, Who have you how, killed? how many people have you killed? <laughs> like, should I be calling someone here? Um, and it's they're making a claim, which, in terms of everyday life, is untestable. Um, right. And and often they're making that claim because it's untestable. Exactly. Um, because no one's going to say, all right, well, let's fight to the death. Um, and, you know, you were talking before about um, the the martial context of, of Hema, that these were men who themselves had been in duels, who had taught people who were going to have duels and, and the sort of a specter of death was there. Um, yeah. And it's... It's a very good bullshit detector. Exactly. And I, I think, um, and this... Maybe I'll talk about this later. One of the things I really like about the martial arts when they're done well is you can't bollocks your way out of getting hit. You can't, exactly. You can't argue way, your way out of it. You, you can't say, well, there's a bit more nuance there. No, you got smacked in the head um, and you, because you made a mistake uh, or, or because, you know, you tried your best but the other person was better on the day. <laughs> That, that that doesn't happen sometimes in philosophy because you can argue your way out of it. It turns you know someone right. might have demolished your points, but you you don't recognize that they demolished your points so they didn't <laughs> whereas yeah that, that, that doesn't happen in the martial arts when they 're practiced, uh, well, well.
0: yeah, practiced well yeah when they 're practiced well is a really important. Because, um, you know, you you do find all sorts of situations where, no, I didn't get hit. No, yeah. you didn't touch me. Particularly yes. in fencing, because because we're not doing it with sharp swords usually, and so there's no blood. Which is, incidentally, you know, one of the lovely things about... Um, are you familiar with 19th century sharps? As in, um, basically like a like an epee, but it has like a quarter-inch sharp point on the end of it. So not a d'arrêt. But, yeah, so... It was not very common, but if someone was training for, and was expecting a, a duel, there was, again, this is not a common practice in 19th century fencing, but it did exist, where they would fence without shirts and with these just enough of a blade on it mm-hmm. to give you a nasty poke, and you would bleed.
1: Ah, you know, I think um, Perez Reverte in – um the fencing master, his novel, has mm. his protagonists fencing with those, so they're not they're not full on impaled by these essentially small swords, um, but they're given a nasty hey. poke. Yeah, that's Could be very interesting. Yeah. So,
0: and, and the point of that is you can't deny the hit. No. And l- likewise, I have a friend um, who used to fence rapier in the SCA, and. Got fed up with the honor system, and not everyone's honor is quite as robust as it ought to be, perhaps. Yes. And so he took to he took to chalking the end of his rapier. Oh, nice! Yes, And nice. That, That's great. And yeah, and so so establishing, you know, in boxing, the the, the hit only does the damage it actually does, hmm. right? Um, in wrestling, the hold only does. The restriction that it actually does, yes, right. But with swords, the blow does just the very tiniest little token of what it's actually supposed to be doing. And so we we do have this this problem of how do we establish was that actually a hit? Yes, Um, and and you know I think that's why a lot of people find the tournament environment so attractive is because there's a very clearly established system of deciding, was that actually a hit? You've got judges and you've got points and it's really clear. And, you know, this sort of hit may, you might count it or not in the cell, but no, here's a rule set. Here's a very clearly defined environment. What works in this environment, we know it actually works because we actually have a system for establishing what actually a hit really is.
1: Yes, which I think is falsely clear because... You know, we we all know of the circumstances in which you just don't know. We, we don't know the damage that hit would have done. We don't know if you would have survived long enough to give the afterblow and so on. But I think you're right that there's enough clarity there to provide a consistent, clear system of, you know, possible damage or possible harm and so on. Right. And I agree. I think that clarity is very important. And it's it's certainly several steps above other rule sets that have no concept of an afterblow, for example, um, where all you have to do is hit the person first. Um, and as I, I hope you would agree, Hitting someone first with sort of one and a half kilograms of steel and then getting hit yourself with one and a half kilograms of steel is not the victory that you might think it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. The word Pyrrhic springs to
1: mind. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I was watching um, a kendo tournament recently and this really brought this to mind. I mean, I have enormous respect for kendo as a, um, a martial art. And, and I know some kendo car practices – Practice it as a martial art, not just as a sport. I mean, obviously, it's heavily sportified. Um, but you see the swiftness of their techniques and their commitment. The speed and precision is beautiful. But sometimes, when you watch two kendoka, each giving the other an incredibly swift, precise hit to the head,
0: um, you have to wonder, yeah what is the truth there?
1: Yeah, exactly, because um that's not a double. Someone hit first, but someone hit so so much I said a fraction of a second first. I, I'm you know, I, I'm not sure you would call that much of a of a conquest. But you know, I I don't want to get too much into that because I'm not I'm not an expert on, on kendo, but I I do I do think it's really important in the martial arts to have these systems that allow people to have a clear sense of when they failed. Sometimes that's just because your head's ringing because you got hit so hard that it's absolutely impossible to deny. Um, But also you need to be part of a community that is continually trying very hard to recognize the truth. So they're there watching. um, You know, there's two or three of them. They're all there aware of human error and they're trying to work their way to finding out what, what happened and they're trying to do it within a few seconds of it happening. I have enormous respect for um, tournament judges when they get it right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: But also, like, like the, I think the critical thing there, one of the really critical things there is that um, the failure has to be survivable, not just physically, as in we were not injuring each other, but also sort of socially and in terms of... like So if somebody... Goes in and they know if they get hit, they're going to be ridiculed and disdained by their community. They will yes. do whatever they can to avoid acknowledging that the hit has occurred. Yes, yeah, Donald Donald Trump right now denying the results of the election is a perfect yes. example of that. And instantly, just this is going to go out some some weeks from now. We're recording this on the nineteenth of November, twenty twenty. Um, so, but if if the if the if the environment sort of treats that sort of failure as a necessary, even an enjoyable part of the whole learning process. And so you can actually show your bruises off in the pub afterwards and people are Oh, that's cool. Not, well, you should have fucking parried. Yeah. You suck. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 And and that, that's crucially important, I think. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I agree. That's partly what I was talking about earlier about the importance of developing a, a uh, a community of learning for mutual benefit. Um, exactly. And it, yeah, one of the things that Steve stresses regularly, Steve in hand, mm-hmm. is that um, you're there to fence well, not just to win. Uh, exactly. And there, are, and there are many times when I know, I know damn well that I've scored a point because of my my not natural, but my habitual sense of timing and distance, not because I did the technique well. And if I try that same technique that sloppily uh, with other opponents, I'm, I'm going to get nailed. Um, and, and, but, but what I really wanted to do at that moment was I wanted to win, I wanted to beat them. I didn't want to do the technique well. That's entirely right. my failing and entirely in character, um, but the, the structure is there to encourage me to do otherwise. And I, I'd rather right. attempt a technique well and fail than to just score points by doing techniques badly against the opponents that they'll work on. Right. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's, and that's the essence of it. Yes, I, and, you know, I, I am I am a sucker for a cheap leg shot in the middle of a bout. I love it. Well, if, and, I,
0: if I ever get to fence you, I will bear that strongly.
1: You know, and, and look, a good opponent just slips the leg and smacks me in the head. It's, as they it's, should. As they should. But I know that there are some people I can get away with it with and in a, a moment of frustration, I might try to get away with it. And I think it's, you know, I, I'm completely honest and open about that partly because again i train in an environment where you can be honest and open about your right. mistakes um sure. it's it's not seen as good that that happens it is seen as natural and something to work on right yes it's, it's a necessary part
0: of the process exactly because um, if, if you never if you're not generating mistakes you have no there's no
1: natural stimulus to get better exactly yeah and look i You said earlier you mentioned curiosity, and honestly, that is my primary guiding – look, I want to say virtue, but I will also say kind of pleasure. I get enormous pleasure from indulging my curiosity. Um, I'm thrilled by seeing how techniques work and don't work and why they don't work and uh, in what context they work and so on. And that, to me, takes precedence over winning, which is healthy. I think. Yeah, I would agree, and it.
0: Again, you have to be in an environment where that's sort of valued. Yes. And it's like like a good librarian, right? A kid comes into a library, and the kid is interested in cars, fine, okay. Or the kid is interested in history, fine, okay. Or it doesn't matter what the child is interested in, the librarian will go oh okay yes we have these books this one might be a bit old for you but try it anyway this one yep. uh might be a bit young for you but it might be a good place to start if you're new to this subject and the, right and it's it's the, the curiosity i mean libraries exist as sort of monuments to curiosity yes yeah um yeah. and and so I, and i think a good a good martial arts environment has a similar sort of it's it's okay if what you're mostly interested in is, you know, how to win tournaments. That's an, that's a valid thing to be curious in, about. Or if if you're mostly interested in this particular text from 1428, what does it actually mean? How do we reproduce the yes. art that's within it? And whatever. That's a perfectly valid curiosity. Yes. And and your that environment, the environment that the The teacher or the school creates should provide the necessary negative feedback in the terms of where you got hit so obviously something's not working but also the necessary um kind of psychological comfort that it's okay to get it wrong and it's okay to get hit and it's okay for all these all these things all these necessary stumbles on the way to finding out the thing you want to find out
1: yes yeah and i think it's And also, fundamentally, it's okay to just be curious. Um, Right, absolutely. You know, it it was enormously beneficial for me to study karate when I studied it as a teenager. It was an an immense um, source of self-discipline and and pride. But one of the problems with some traditional Japanese martial arts is that they discourage curiosity. you You are not encouraged to wonder why such and such is the case. In fact, you were explicitly told, don't ask questions. You don't need to know. Uh, And the idea is that curiosity, if it's for anyone, is for far more experienced people. Um, And maybe that worked when I was a teenager, but it it just really um, disappoints me now, (laughs) you know, I I think. Yeah. Because what, um, at least in HEMA, what else would drive someone to a 16th century manuscript other than curiosity? It's, it can't possibly right. be practicality. They, they're not. Then, okay. I, I have, I have a theory
0: that it sort of explains why many martial arts schools behave that way. And it's okay. If you join the army at the age of 17 or whatever, and you go through basic training and you know, the drill instructor does not give a shit about your curiosity. You're there to be told what to do, what to think, what to dress, how to do everything, da 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 And, you know, maybe some, some time later, when you've gone through your basic training or whatever, and you're looking at specializing as a medic or a sniper or whatever else, then, yes, then we can take those things into consideration. But as at the boot camp level... Um, we're we're trying to we're trying to make a soldier out of a person we're not interested in that person's curiosity Hmm. and I think I think a lot of martial arts schools um, conflate that sort of military boot camp sort of mentality with it being real martial arts
1: right oh that's an interesting point yes okay and that that would dovetail nicely with what we know about the formations of karate, for example, which right. was, you know, in Meiji era Japan, these martial arts were developed um, as part of a kind of nationalistic educational exercise in which obedience was really important. Um, there you go. So, and obedience is the key virtue of a soldier. Yes, exactly. So in both of these um, – kind of social institutions, the most important thing is for you to shut up and do what you're told. And later on maybe you can ask why you were doing that. But the primary thing now is to, yeah, is to fall in line and, and do your basics. Mm-hmm. So that that does make some sense. And again, <clears throat> that obviously has some functional place. And as a teenager, I needed to learn how to shut up yeah. and do what I was told. It was something I was really not very good at and I needed yeah. to kind of swallow my antisocial pride and learn to discipline myself.
0: Which actually um, is, a, is a perfect preparation for getting married later on.
1: <laughs> See, yeah, I mean, for, for me, um, <clears throat> not wanting to take issue too strongly with your notion of marriage, but um, <laughs> for, for me, love has always been about the... Um, the free relationship between two equals trying to respect the other as an other. Um, And in fact, you know, the whole point of obedience is that the other is not recognized as an other; They're an extension of yourself. What you will, they do. Whereas in, in love, and I'm absolutely pillaging from the French philosopher Badiou here in love, there's a continual struggle to actually be two. To not reduce them to you or, or yourself to them, but to, to be a, an actual couple, a distinctive set of two entities that work together. Um, and that, that phenomenon is exactly what's missing from a lot of martial arts, where there's really an emphasis on where well, you're not a distinctive person. you're not You're not an autonomous yeah. being. You're here to do what you're told. So obviously, I know your, your marriage quip is, you know, is just a quip, but I actually, it's actually hugely relevant because love is what obedience isn't. Right. Yeah, fair. And, and that's, that's
0: the thing about, um, like, okay, in, in some traditional martial arts, you know, sensei is king. Yes. Okay. But in historical martial arts, Salvatore Fabris was fencing master to the king of Denmark, an actual king. Yes. Who was in charge in that relationship? Yes. Right? One of them is a hired professional like a plumber or someone who can arrange the fireworks. And the other is the actual king. <laughs> in, yes. A- appointed by God himself, according to the way they were thinking back then. Yes. Right? Yeah. So so the notion of a historical martial arts instructor being some kind of... Um, what's the word? Well, I guess... Guru or sensei is mm. entirely anti-historical. Yes. Us, us sword professionals, we were, you know, a sergeant hired by an officer to teach them how to fight with swords. Or or Fury, who wasn't even a knight. He was a son of a knight, but he wasn't a knight himself, teaching people like Galeasa de Mantua who was definitely a knight, or even he might even have taught Nicola d'Este at some point, who certainly addressed his manuscript to him. That's the Marquis of Ferrara. Yeah. Fiore is not even a knight. Who is in charge? Yes. Actually, when I when I teach a seminar these days, I normally sort of give this little speech at the beginning to say, look, if I'm Fiore, you guys are the Marquesses of Ferrara. So I I you have hired me to teach you something, so you tell me what you want us to cover and that's what we're gonna do. I don't just show up with a this is this is this is my class today and this is what we're doing.
1: It's like no, no, no. It's their job to tell me what they need from me. Yes, and they could be wrong about what they need from you too. That's really important. Absolutely. Like they, they may see. Well, I want to look flashy. You know. Um, that's not uh, right. There's yeah, nothing wrong with r- that. Rather, let me let me rephrase that. I want to learn to fight like the hero of The Witcher by constantly turning my back on my opponents and and holding the sword in reverse. You would be remiss as a teacher if you just said, yes, that absolutely works. You should definitely learn to fence like right. that because that's that's how they all fenced back in the day. Um, <laughs> it, it, it would be your job to say, I'm happy to, but here are the limitations of that, of those right. techniques. It's, it's like, you know, when, when we have a,
0: a plumber in the house at the moment who is installing a shower and it is our job to tell him what kind of shower we want and when we want it to do and it's his job to decide where the p- pipes go and how they connect and what have you because exactly. we went if i if i came in and said no i'm sorry i want that pipe to go over there he would he would probably quit because it would be a impossible situation for him because you know he's being told to do something that is like it's definitely going to cause problems and then somehow he's liable because like all this water came pouring through our bedroom ceiling and yes. it's his fault because he put the pipe there, but it's my fault because, yeah, it's, it's, it's not. So there has, to be, there has to be a kind of um, within this domain. And, you know, very often what the students actually tell me that they need is they need a basic introduction to Fiori and just to be told what to do all day. That's yes. fine. Yes, exactly. That's fine. But it, that has to be something
1: they are consciously and deliberately choosing. Yes. Not something that I'm imposing on them from without. Yep, I, I agree. And, you know, a similar example might be if, if we turn up to class and we want to do um, longsword, but we don't have heavy sparring gloves. And it's it's the teacher's job to say, well, look, maybe we can do some drills, but you cannot bout without heavy sparring right. gloves because you'll break your fingers. Yeah. Um, exactly. And I can't, in good conscience, teach you that. Of course, I could, and you could demand it because you're paying me, but I'm not going to do it. Um, yeah. You know, so there's this, there, there's a really important educational relationship there. I think Aristotle said, yeah. knowledge and money have no common measure. Um, so there's often yeah. debates between students and teachers because, well, I've paid this money, now I want the knowledge. And a good teacher will be in a position to say, well, I'm happy to give you much of this knowledge, but you have to know that this may hurt you. This one is futile. This one is silly. This one is false and so on. Do you know what I mean? So there's a... Yeah. Um, the money doesn't translate into ultimate power unless, as you no. said, you actually are a king, in which case <laughs> you're the king. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we th- th- There was... Um, we've been talking a bit about how philosophy can help us make sense of what happens in the martial arts and hema in particular but I, I think mm-hmm. um, there have been things I've learned in the martial arts that have been helpful for philosophy too that, that have, well, I
0: was I was going to ask you know I, I I can totally see how how philosophy helps martial arts but how do martial arts help philosophy
1: so I suppose there's there there again a sort of two ways in which this works, there's like um, a general approach to philosophy itself, you know, so how I approach the discipline, my own habits, my own propensities, and how how the martial arts might inform those. And then there's very particular philosophical problems that arise from martial arts practice. I might, I might talk about those in a bit, but just talking about my basic approach to martial arts um, – I found that it's a really good reminder of what it feels like to make a mistake. We were talking about this earlier. Mm. And as, as a philosopher um I won't say that I think about philosophy as a combat sport. I certainly did as an undergraduate and, you know, a postgraduate. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I was brutal, I was cruel. Um, I really was after the victory, which, which is certainly common of many philosophers, and I suspect it's common of young, white, male, middle-class philosophers. There is a, there is a kind of arena vision of philosophy, which I think in some ways is bad for philosophy. But, um, but, I, but I also find that this martial arts reminds me of what it feels like to fail. And it, it, it does it in a palpable, embodied sense, and that's really important so that I, I don't delude myself and that I'm not continually making excuses. When, when, I've, when I've failed, it ought to hurt. You know, it, it shouldn't destroy me, it shouldn't break me apart, but it ought, there ought to be something palpable about failure, even if it's only the sting of sort of lapsed pride, of humility. Um, you know, hum- humility is not a bad feeling. We should sometimes feel a certain ugliness about ourselves. Um, this, and there's a related point, and that is, I think it's, I shouldn't be frustrated by my opponent's blow. I should be frustrated by my own weak defense. And I think that's right. that's absolutely true of philosophy. If, if I've muddled the argument and someone's um, pointed out the floor, if I've written a book where there are holes or oversights or simplifications or generalities that I can't back up, it's not someone else's fault that they've pointed that out. It's my fault. (laughs) Um, You know, similarly, you know, as I was saying, if I go for that leg cut and I get smacked in the head by one of my tall opponents who regularly does that, it's it's not on him, it's on me. Um, because he's he's the one pointing out my mistake. He's actually helping me. Um, if I, anything, I should I, be grateful. I, I would
0: go further and say, if he fails to slip the leg of wacky in the head, he is not doing you any favors at all. In fact, he's not being a good training partner. Yes, I agree. He's encouraging you to, do, to,
1: to take risks. I agree. Yes. In fact, that was one of my definitions of courtesy in uh, my paper on the Japanese martial arts. Is is there is a courtesy in attacking your opponent with with commitment, um, you're Absolutely. doing you're doing your opponent a sincere courtesy by not um, waving away your mistakes. Uh, sorry, their mistakes, their vulnerabilities. Um, right, and I've I've come across this um, particularly when
0: young men are training with a woman and they're reluctant to hit a girl or reluctant to throw a girl on the floor. Right. It's disrespectful. And it's just, exactly. And so they have this cultural conditioning to not hit women, but the person standing in front of them is only sort of accidentally a woman. She's deliberately a training partner and a martial artist. So yes. What I normally do is in that situation, I'll go over and I'll do the drill with the woman and I'll dump her on the floor or smack her in the head or whatever is supposed to happen so that the person can see because using a kind of a different cultural conditioning, which is if the teacher does it, it must be right. Yes. So I can use that to, to get the student over the thing. But I have had a couple of uh, male students over the last 20 years or so who have quit because they simply don't want to be in a situation where they ever have to hit a woman.
1: Oh, yeah. Which is odd. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, it's also the arrogance that they don't want to hit a woman, (laughs) given that there are so many women who would impale them within a few seconds. They won't have a choice about whether or not they hit that woman. They will be hit. Well,
0: yeah, sure.
1: You know, it reminds me of that In- terrible thing recently that women, women can't be sword fighters. I don't know if you saw that absurd YouTube clip. Uh, oh, yeah, I heard, of, by a, I heard about that. My novelist. Yeah. And it's it's just anyone who's practiced HEMA knows that that's just fundamentally false. Um, right. It's just <clears throat> yeah, no my, truth. My,
0: fir- my first fencing coach was a woman. Um, yeah. Her name was Gail Rudge. And... Yeah, she, she could just stab me wherever she liked, whenever she liked, because she was really good at
1: swords. Exactly. And I had never trained with them before. And it's it's not... only how that works. <laughs> for, for those of us who are sort of in these institutions, it's not even a question. It's, it's, it's sort of, it's beyond being a question. It's so normalized that um, people of, of all genders and sexualities can kill each other with swords, that it's sort of only these... Uh, ignorant outsiders who are like, what? They let a woman do that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. um, There's another thing, and actually it goes to what we were just saying. It's that in the martial arts, there must be goodwill in order to practice together. You must have some basic level of goodwill some some basic sense that your training partners are decent and respectful and caring, and that if they're not, you simply cannot train with them because the right. the results will be bad for everyone. Not only will it spread discord and the sort of social fabric will begin to unknit, but you will have injuries, you will have um, you know Psychological injuries and probably physical injuries because people who can't get on can't train together. Um, and interestingly, that lesson in martial arts, I think, has informed me more in philosophy than the other way around. Um, if I can't have a conversation, a debate, an argument with some basic level of goodwill, I'm not going to have the argument because it's pointless. It's just going to. It's going to end up in petty insults, slurs, um, nasty sarcasm, point scoring, and it will be bad for everyone involved. So it's it's just better to not have that argument because no one's going to get no one's going to learn anything from it. Um, Sure, and yeah, and that's it's odd that I've learned it that way round, but there it is.
0: (laughs) Yeah, although you know, at a certain level. in martial arts, it is useful to go and find those people who will, you know, cheat and be you know, break the social contract and because they actually provide really useful training opportunities, but you have to be pretty advanced before you're ready for that kind of exposure.
1: Yes, I think in in some ways that's a teacher or a senior student's job. Yeah. Not your average student's job. Oh yeah, 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 and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking of professional instructors. Yes,
0: and
1: yes, in fact, I think that that um, professional instructors must undertake these efforts for the good of everyone. Yeah. To as we were saying earlier, they must provide some kind of moral leadership and try to cultivate the habits that make for a good learning environment, um, or it, everyone suffers. Yeah, absolutely so.
0: Now. Um, I have just noticed the time and yes. We've, yes. We've, we've run, we've run significantly longer than, than I normally run. That's okay. It's my show. So we can have episodes as long as I like. Um, but I think we should probably yes. um, start bringing this to, to a close. Um, so let me just finish up with, a, with a, a couple of questions that I ask most of my guests. And um, the first is what is the best idea you've not
1: acted on? Part of me wants to say I should have had plush toys made um, of the characters in my first children's book, um, because I also write picture books for children. And my first picture book was My Nana is a Ninja. And it involves this this great ninja Nana um, and her ninja cat, kind of ginger cat. (laughs) And I keep thinking that I really should have plush toys made. Um, I'm not the illustrator, so that would be complicated. But that would be so cool, and yet I've never I've never done it. I, I know it seems like a <laughs> weirdly obscure thing, but um, it's been a really popular book. It's still selling. It was like six years ago it came out. What's it called? My nana is a ninja. My nana is a ninja.
0: I, I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes because yes. I definitely want a copy.
1: So there's a there's a series of six. My nana is a ninja, my pop is a pirate. My brother is a beast. My sister is a superhero. Um, my mum is a magician and my dad is a dragon. Um, and the, the first one, the wow. ninja, is still the most popular. Um, but I, I kind of, I always have this thought sometimes in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning when I think, you know, a plush toy, Nana, ninja would really be something. Yes, um, but certainly I, would. I never do it. But, but in general, um, it's really difficult to assess an idea Abstractly, Like, would it have been the best if I actually tried it? Uh, Aren't there good reasons why I didn't try it? So, I have to say I'm not someone who – I'm not really that regretful. I don't think if only I'd have taken that shot or this shot. If I think something's a really good idea, I tend to do it. Um, You know, that's why (laughs) I'm a philosopher, but I've also written fiction. I I write children's books. Um, I, I do all sorts of things because i think they're good ideas <laughs> <laughs> yes excellent uh, yeah I, you know i i asked that
0: question of um many guests and a lot of them i wish i would started my own school or i wish i'd written this book or whatever or and and often it's like well actually now i'm going to go and do that but no one has ever said i wish i'd had plush toys made out after the character <laughs> yeah, that's I- that's
1: genius <laughs> i mean i'm i'm kind of doing what i always wanted to do i, I write books yeah. for a living um that that is the dream that is the good idea that i i followed um so I, yeah Thank and that's you. luck as much as anything but yeah plush toys man um that would be <laughs> the, the coolest forward. thing it would
0: okay and my, my last question um you have a million pounds um Two million uh, Australian dollars, something like that, to improve either philosophy or historical martial arts or both, how would you spend it?
1: Well, I could buy like a one bedroom bed seat in London for that. Or half of one if I went in with someone. Um,
0: Okay, okay, okay. uh, But, 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 okay, but, Damon, these are (laughs) theoretical pounds and you could actually have as many of them as you really want.
1: (laughs) Right. Okay, so uh, I don't feel qualified enough to make suggestions about what would improve HEMA. You know, I'm not an instructor. Um, I I don't know enough about the culture to say what would make things better. What I will say is that if someone found a way to highly subsidize very good quality articulated longsword gloves, um, I would be thrilled uh, because the really good gloves are very expensive and the cheaper gloves feel like you're wearing two bicycle helmets. Um, and it's very difficult to <coughs> to do many longsword techniques with bicycle helmets strapped to your hands. But, yeah, I, I don't think I could offer much in terms of HEMA. In terms of philosophy, um, I would spend my infinite pounds... At sort of two ends. um, I would do more outreach. I would try to involve more um, marginalized poor groups, marginalized or poor groups in philosophy. It's very much dominated by middle-class white men. Um, I would try to make philosophy itself more diverse. Um, And I, I mean that quite sincerely. I think philosophy would be better at its job if it had a a richer group of people doing philosophy. Um, Hmm. uh, At the other end, I suppose I would encourage working philosophers to do more work with the general public. Um, I don't just mean giving the odd lecture. I mean writing and I don't just mean either dumbing down. I think that's a really poor phrase. Often what I mean is, learning to write beautifully, um, punchily, evocatively, lyrically, whatever is your mode for a general audience. And that might be nonfiction, it might be fiction, it might be poetry, it might be for TV, but I would really like to encourage more philosophers to do that. Um, Because, you know, you look at someone like Jean-Paul Sartre, some of his writing was awful. Being in nothingness is just – I gnash my teeth bad – some of his writing's terrible <laughs> because he was, you know, he was hopped up on amphetamines while he was doing it. But some of Sartre's best work was work like Nausea, which is a novel and it's possibly the finest representation of existentialism he ever wrote. Um, and it's in the form of a novel. I would love to see more philosophers doing that sort of thing.
0: Okay. And how would the money help?
1: Um, I think partly – Funding projects. So, for example, you know, a philosopher comes and says, "Well, look, I I really love to write something for TV, um, but I don't. I have no idea. Can you hook me up with mentors? Um, of course, you'd have to pay them. Uh, can you provide me with equipment? I need, you know, I need these kinds of cameras, or I need these kinds of lights, or studio time, or whatever it is. Or maybe it's funding someone to go away and work with a novelist for six months to understand how it works." Um, or maybe it's a prize for um, the best popular work or something like best creative work in philosophy um, because there is, there is so much to say. There's such a rich tradition in European and uh, Eastern or Arabic philosophy, African philosophy. There is so much to be said. Um, and sometimes it pains me that it's, it's typically being said to 10 or 12 people. Um, in papers in universities that no one else reads.
0: Yeah, it it's. I mean, I, I was thinking like having better philosophy teaching at the, the primary school level. That philosophy should be a it, it's a it's a sort of system of thought and a and a and a toolkit, which if you've been exposed to it, is really really useful. Yes. And if you haven't been exposed to
1: it, it's just mystifying. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, and that's, that's partly that's what really I mean. Using use of the money. That's partly what I mean by outreach too: going oh. to schools that are poor or marginal, um, where these kids might not even have a proper library, certainly not a teacher librarian, um, and teaching philosophy and making it as exciting and challenging as it should be. Um, and as I said, that would be really good for philosophy, but I think it would be really good for kids too. And of course, the people are doing this. There are, There is philosophy for kids. Yeah, yeah. There, there are people doing some amazing work out there, but insofar as I had my um, my chest full of bullion that you've so kindly given me, um, <laughs> yeah, part of it would go on projects like that.
0: Uh, excellent. Okay. I think that's a... That's a- we should, we should maybe finish on that chest full of bullion.
1: Yes. Uh, thank you very much for talking to me today, David. That's been really interesting. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Guy.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Damon Young. And our conversation actually continued for about another hour after the recording ended when he brought up the definition of a sword, what actually is a sword, what are the philosophical implications of swordiness. I accidentally forgot to stop recording, so I have that audio and I am preparing it into a special extra episode that will come out sometime in the next few weeks. In the meantime, remember to check out the episode show notes for transcriptions, links to things we discuss and of course, your free copy of Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers, and Martial Artists. I'd like to do a special shout out this week to Gethin Edwards, who very kindly examined the current state of audio affairs at the Sword Guy HQ and made some very helpful suggestions about how to improve the audio. If you notice that this audio sounds better than it used to, that's entirely due to his kind tuition. So, thank you, Gethin. I'll be in touch when things go wrong again. And speaking of supporters of the show, of course, the show is made possible by my patrons on Patreon. So if you enjoy the show and you want us to get the next 30 episodes done, then please toddle along to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy and support us at whatever level you feel comfortable. There are perks for everyone. Tune in next week when I'll be talking to actor, director, pole dancer, fencer, performance combatant, adventurer and pirate, Kelly Costigan, who is also the narrator of the brand new audiobook version of my book, Theory and Practice of Historical Martial Arts, which is, I should say, the first book on historical martial arts ever to be created as an audiobook, as far as I can tell. I've done category searches on the usual audiobook suppliers, and nobody else has produced an audiobook on this subject. And having produced an audiobook on this subject, I can understand why. It is a long, slow, difficult process. And Kelly, of course, made that whole thing much, much more enjoyable than it might otherwise have been. So tune in next week when I'll be talking to Kelly about various things, her, her sword career, her acting, and of course, what it was like <laughs> narrating the book. And... I will also be releasing sometime sometime after that a free chapter of the book as a sort of standalone episode of the podcast. So you don't want to miss any of this, obviously. So toddle along to wherever you get your podcast from, make sure you're subscribed. And if you would take a moment to rate the show or even review it, that would be splendid. It helps much more than you
1: might imagine. So thanks for listening and I will see you next week.